The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. TIAA makes you a retirement promise, a promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. Hello and welcome to the Big Technology Podcast, a show for cool-headed, nuanced conversation of the tech world and beyond. Well, our guest today, Brian Morrissey, writes the Rebooting Newsletter and hosts the Rebooting Podcasts. It's an excellent read and listen about the future of digital publishing. And I am a pretty intense reader and listener of, of the stuff that Brian does, A, because I run my own digital publishing business, but B, because... I think when the internet changes, you can always see this stuff happening first in the digital publishing world. I think it's kind of like the crimes and courts of, uh, of, of the internet. You see the changes happen there first, and then you start talking about how the policies can, can fix the issues. So I'm thrilled to have Brian here today. We're going to have a long discussion about the, um, the evolution, the next evolution of digital publishing, and we'll touch on some Web3 and crypto stuff at the end. Brian, welcome to the show. Alex, thank you. I'm very excited to do this. Yeah, thrilled that you're here. Um, like I, I kept trying to hire you so many times in like, <laughs> you know the last decade. <laughs> well, look, we we, did, we have worked together on. on I know we did a little occasions, bit. which was awesome. And I will say, like you know, um, having been edited by you, I think that like you're an excellent editor and always oh, made the stuff that I was writing better. So. Um, it's actually a thrill to to see you writing more at the reboot. I know, I, know. I like came, I like came out of retirement. You know, yeah. it's harder. It's harder at first. Like even though I I was a a reporter for probably like fifteen years, and then mm-hmm. you know you become an editor, and I feel like um, you know you become an editor. You're like I'm going to do both. I'm going to be like a player coach, and mm-hmm. and and then next thing you know, you're in like meeting after meeting after meeting, yeah. and I used to. I used to write down what I was spending my time on and, and the, the, the actual product, which is journalism, or we must call it content these days, was like a small sliver. And so um, it's been good to get back to actually doing the creation myself, um, but it's harder. It's harder yeah, than it used so to be. so much harder. Uh, <laughs> when I send big technology out on Thursday and like Thursday morning, I wake up and I'm like, oh, no. <laughs> I don't know yeah. if this happens to you also. But it always happens. That's Rioting. the thing. Yeah. My just, wife is always like, she's like stock, you you put it to the end and like, yeah. then it happens. So Exactly. Yeah. And then eventually it comes together. Um, and I, I do remember that, um, you know, we've, we've had lots of conversations over the years, but one of uh, the things that you've said that stuck with me is you talked about like companies and sometimes, you know, you can tell, you, I think you said that you can look at the health of a company when it comes to the ratio of people writing emails versus doing stuff. <laughs> yeah. uh, and it must be nice to be the person doing the stuff now, even though you're doing it in email format, which is kind of a blend of maybe the two passions. Yeah. No, I was the digital editor at Adweek for, for many years. I think it was seven. Yeah. I forget what it was. It was definitely two years too long. And um, I used to go into meetings and I would mentally sort of, um, you know, divide people into writes emails or write stories. <laughs> and it was vastly, yeah. uh, vastly outnumbered the number of people who are writing emails versus writing stories. But then I became the guy writing emails rather than writing stories. So I started to value mm-hmm. that group of people a lot higher. 
Ah, interesting. <laughs> and now? Now I'm back to like saying, oh, what are these people just writing? Although I am writing emails, but like, you know, actually, uh, you know, creating the product. But I do think that there's something to be said that like, um, you know, as publishing grew more complicated with its business models, the infrastructure needed to execute on, on those things just kept growing. And so the ratio of people who are actually making the product versus people who are doing things around the product kind of grew because I think a lot of publishing business have not been direct um, business models, right? So they're, they're advertising companies or, mm-hmm. or events companies. And so the, it was a bit of a shell game, right? Like you're creating, um, you're, you're doing journalism and you're creating content. Um, but really the business was, in in some ways something else yeah and and we'll get to this but that's when when it the business hiccups then then it always ends up getting uh the cost ends up getting borne out by the people creating the content yeah and and that sucks and and i think it also like it it has created this era and i mean yeah it created it's created this era where reporters um, are like always on unstable footing they're underpaid and even though these media businesses could be healthy you know, you end up getting just a small percentage actually going to the people writing the stories versus writing the emails. And that's why, I, you know, we're going to get to it, but that's why I'm sort of uh, bullish on this new model of of independent publishing where, you know, I think one of the things that I've realized doing, doing big technology is that um, when you cut out a lot of the inefficiency, you could actually have, you know, the, the output of a single reporter is actually worth something more than what you see inside media companies. Yeah, because I think a lot of times the people packaging together the content and selling the content um, were taking a larger slice of the pie, right? Um, the pie is not necessarily growing, but I think how how it's being sliced is different. Um, and there's a lot of economic pressures on publishing, but at the same time, there's a lot of inequality within publishing organizations. And I think that is part of this great resignation and and the... X person to Substack meme is different economics because once I think what Substack has done, um, and and you're a great example of this. It's a media business in a box, right? Um, you're doing it. You, you and I are both doing slightly different different models than a lot of Substack, but like I think right. what Substack has enabled is people to set up a media business in ten minutes. You can hook up a Stripe account and you have a media business. You you have all the infrastructure there. It doesn't mean you like, you know, this podcast will probably be edited by by someone uh, different, but like you have very minimal costs. And when you can lower your, your, your costs, then you have a lot of, you know, a lot of it is, is, is upside to some degree. It's hard because you have to do everything. Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't think it's for everyone. And I think, you know, a lot of people don't have the privilege um, to be able to go off on their own and make it work. Um, but for those that do, that have some traction or reputation and particularly expertise in, in an area, um, it's a very attractive model. Yeah. And I want to talk about how we got here and then we'll circle back to the um, prospects of uh, individual publishing and also the other the other um, trends that we're seeing in digital publishing uh, right now, which is this this sort of I don't know you could kind of call it facetiously a pivot to quality, right? <laughs> but um, it does seem like maybe just five minutes ago we were moving from the search engine optimized Huffington Post uh, era, 
of digital publishing to the social media era where you had the buzzfeeds of the world where i used to work but also the mics and mm-hmm. um you know other places that all pivoted to video and then seemed to fall apart you could maybe put vox media in that in that camp um and so brian can you share a little bit about why uh why we're evolving away which i really think is the case from the social media um mm-hmm. driven publishing model to something else but let's talk about why social media driven yeah. publishing is on the outs well i think digital publishing you know if you think about when it really started the idea was it, there was an artificial constraint on the ability to publish you needed a printing press in many cases. Now, the internet was going to change that, and it was going to lead to all kinds of new publications, and anyone can create content. There'd be no gatekeepers. And that, in some ways, happened in the early internet. But the problem was, it was impossible to find. It was impossible to make money from. And so, you ended up having algorithms. The original algorithm was the search algorithm. Um, And so, SEO popped up as a way to solve for discoverability. Um, and what happened was that was why everyone was writing. What time does the Super Bowl start? They were not writing for people. They were writing for algorithms. Facebook was simply another algorithm. It had different, um, it had different mechanics than, than the Google algorithm that, that gave us how to boil water from demand media. Thank you very much. Demand media. Um, but (laughs) that was was an actual article, how to boil water. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Um, Sorry. Okay, continue. <laughs> there's people who search for it, like because when you follow, the, I always say this: like when you follow the data, and you your 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 main thing is optimizing the data, you're going to optimize into some really weird places. Okay, and search was, you know, that ended up um, leading search, and so when we had, um, you know, social come. Ar- come around with Facebook, what you saw is a lot of people continuing to write for algorithms, which is writing for a different algorithm. So instead of how to boil water, it was more sensationalist content. I mean, the tail was wagging the, the dog in many ways because pe- publications were not writing for people. They were writing for algorithms, right? And, and that there's a difference between the two. So my hope is that we're going to return to like actually writing for people. Right. right algorithms. But it also seemed so promising at the time because, you know, these were big platforms that if you did it right, you could deliver yeah. large uh, um, large amounts of views to your web pages. Or you could even, like BuzzFeed did, try a distributed publishing model where you build big audiences on these platforms and then run ads to the audiences there or, or use the exper- expertise that you built up working on those platforms. Yeah. Uh, to um, to basically create content for advertisers who needed that expertise yeah. in order to reach people there. So, but it does seem like it almost in the blink of an eye, that went away. And it, it, so, so I'm curious, a if you think that that's true that that we we that the publishing uh, publishing business has digital publishing business is moving away from that sort of model. And if so, why did it disappear so quickly? Well, I mean, ultimately, um, you know, this is a game of distribution, right? I mean, it's distribution and monetization um, are sort of the two poles of of publishing. And Facebook particular was, in particular, was a very attractive means of distribution. Um, I can remember, 
you know, little things um, going in 18 months, they, they amassed an audience of 50 million people off of what was originally a, a pet food website. Um, they just got, they turned out they were better at content than pet food um, delivery. And so, you know, that, that growth was always sort of unnatural. Um, media doesn't work that way. It, it, it takes a long time to establish credibility. Um, and, you know, we're in it like mm-hmm. right now. It's like incremental growth is, is it sounds nice, but it also means that it takes a really long time. And so algorithms were a shortcut, in my view, in many ways. It was a shortcut to scale. And like many shortcuts, they're not, <laughs> they, end up, they end up not being worth it in the long term. Like there's, there's, there's very few shortcuts in life. I mean, maybe when we get to the crypto part of the, of mm-hmm. the show, we'll, we'll get to, to shortcuts again. But, you know, publishers were not in control ultimately. I know it's like control of your own destiny it doesn't make sense. But, you know, they were basically enthralled to the vagaries of an algorithm. And it wasn't like, couldn't predict this. Like I used to cover search um, marketing in in this in the early days, and you know the Google Dance that that was the name they used for any time Google changed its algorithm, and there would be winners and losers, and it would wipe away uh, various people who had gotten really good at the last algorithm change, and this was just how it worked um, on the internet, and so I don't think any of that was particularly new because. When you don't have control, um, you know you just have to hope for the good graces of whoever is in control. And Facebook was in control, and Facebook's interests were not the same as publishers' interests. And Facebook proved this time and again. A- and for whatever reason, publishers chose to bet on the fact that this is a juggernaut it is it is rising at an, an incredible rate and we're just going to ride it yeah and, and i mean like having been in the belly of the beast like it was like an unbelievable high when something caught that facebook algorithm and next thing you know you were delivering hundreds of thousands of views to your website it was nuts it Crazy. And it, it, is, it almost seemed unbelievable right yeah. like cuz mm-hmm. i know like just you know look we are Bus- business to business media, which is 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 what we were in at Digiday, has different dynamics than than B two C media, business to consumer media. Because ultimately, with consumer media, you need to you need to reach very large numbers. Whereas in B two B media, you need to reach reach very specific people. So large numbers are not as important. At the same time, like anyone, you know, we were running stories that mm-hmm. were designed to like sort of catch the, the the Facebook algorithm. And some of the numbers on these stories, like it would take like 20 minutes and not 20 minutes, maybe like two hours to like write up some post. And for some reason it would catch the, the Google algorithm and you had hundreds of thousands mm-hmm. of views. And it was like, how is this possible? Right. Yeah. It, d- it did feel, feel fake. Um, and then um, I guess what happened, well, it's not really a guess what did happen was, <laughs> well, anyway, this is a theory really. Yeah. Facebook got a lot of blowback after the 2016 election. And then I think what happened is it realized that, hey, we probably shouldn't be uh, pushing all this news on our news feed. doesn't really seem to benefit us. And then, bam, uh, depreciated the value of, of news links in the feed. And then all of a sudden, the bottom dropped out for a lot of that. Does that sound right to you? 
Yeah, that sounds exactly what happened. And you know, publishers got whole got caught holding the bag. Ultimately, you know, they mm-hmm. built up operations and they hired people specifically to to do this thing, which is write to algorithms, right? And so it became really difficult for these publishers to to change course um, because that's what they were they were geared to do. Now. Now, like when people are starting new publications, nobody says we're going to like excel at on Facebook, right? Like, I mean, right. everyone's like saying we're going to do, we're going to have direct connections with with our audience, mo- mostly through email. Um, and I think that's because we're seeing this this flight to focus, right? And the the publications that are starting now are trying to serve. Um, specific audiences rather than everyone because i think one of the lessons uh, learned from that that era of of algorithmic um control is that when you try to when you try to when you try to cater to everyone you, you become about nothing right you're just like doing the same old same old because everyone has pretty soon everyone had the same playbook right i remember getting pitched one of these um dashboards that tells you what's trending on Facebook and stuff. And I was like, wow, that's like amazing. I'm like, but here's the thing. Aren't you selling this to like every other publisher out there? And they're like, well, I mean, we work with the major publisher. I'm like, so won't I be doing the same stuff everyone else is doing? And how do you build a brand and how do you build a differentiation and long-term enterprise value if you're the 500th um, outlet who's writing the same Kardashian story or the Game of Thrones recap. It's really difficult to do. It's better to do something that's different. Not only that, it shows up in the Facebook newsfeed in the same format. So yeah. NBC News can look the same as Huffington Post, can look the same as Digiday, can look so the I same think as ma- like someone else's yeah. basement publisher. I think in many ways, you know, publishers really devalued their brands completely. Because I always yeah. thought like the, the test of a, a strong publishing brand is if you take off all of the branding, the logos and everything like this, and someone <laughs> can say, yeah, that's a that's an economist story. Like, you know, the economists, like mm-hmm. you got a point of view and stuff. And that's really hard to do when you're catering to algorithms. Um, it's really difficult. You can't have everything and you sacrifice differentiation in the market. And that's why when these a lot of these publications imploded after Facebook, um, you know, pulled the football back. Like Charlotte, mm-hmm. like who was it? Lucy, Lucy did it. Yeah, Lucy. Uh, yeah, she pulled the fo- the uh, the football back on on Charlie. Although Charlie never learned the lesson. That's why we always use that gift for right. the algorithm. It's very fitting story because I'm like Charlie. It was always like, no, this time I'm gonna I got be able it. To kick the football. <laughs> But yes. that's uh yeah I mean that's that's why the, when these publications went away people mourned for an afternoon on um on Twitter and look I don't like losing a job sucks so this is nothing to do with the people who are who who uh unfortunately would have lost their jobs to that but a lot of these publications mm-hmm. weren't truly missed um mm-hmm. and that's because they had no uniqueness um that made them uh that made them essential to a group of people. Yeah. I mean, look, I, I was at one of those public, well, I won't say that BuzzFeed wasn't essential. I thought there was some good parts to it, but I do also think that like I went in eyes wide open saying like yeah. this is, and BuzzFeed was very clear about it. We were experimental. 
we're going to experiment and try to figure out what works. And I do think they've built a somewhat sustainable business. And I think that maybe the problems there were, you know, partially just due to the, which always happens, the investor expectations versus reality. Yeah. Um, well, that's the other thing. It's like yeah. venture capitalists bet. Um, mm-hmm. they, they made like both the right and the wrong bet, right? So yeah. I, I can remember, you know, everyone used to trot out the Mary Meeker slide. Do you know that one? Oh yes, it, the amount of time spent versus the dollars spent, the dollars yeah. spent, and the time spent online and on mobile far exceeded the dollars that were being spent. So the idea behind that slide was that eventually the dollars were going to catch up, and the publishers that got ahead would get a windfall. And that's why a- the Andreessen Horowitz of the world invested in BuzzFeed yeah. because it was an idea that if you were a digital publishing company that cracked this nut, you were going to beat the New York Times in the game, right, and get that money. So that actually did happen. Those those lines both met and actually got exceeded. Okay, uh-huh. but the problem is all the money <laughs> went to Google and Facebook and Amazon. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> wah wah. Right, and so like you ended up having publications that filled these companies' feeds with great content, did exactly what they asked for, but ended up just making the platforms money. Yeah, basically. And so, and, and now we're moving away from that. You know, it's interesting because we've heard less like. I feel like there's been less of a buzz about how Facebook's killing publishing recently because publishers, I think, have gotten smart and said, we're not going to depend on that anymore. So I want you, you've written a lot about this. So can you talk a little bit about where we're heading now? Because there does seem to be this move away from, you know, catch all, do everything, publish on social media to, I don't know, maybe you could call it. Uh, pivot to quality, um, pivot to scarcity. Um, I'm always afraid about you know media, digital public uh, publications doing these pivots to X because we know what <laughs> usually happens. But where are we going, Brian? Yeah, I think publishers sort of went through the the Kubler Ross stages of grieving. You know, it's like <laughs> uh-huh. bargaining acceptance. <laughs> there <laughs> like, was definitely anger. Anger. There was, was anger there in a big way. They, they spent a long time on the anger phase. Okay, and look. Everyone, you know, everyone's process is different. For publishers, the anger phase was a long one. Um, <laughs> it's like the bargaining phase. Like, okay, live yeah. video didn't work, but now, you know, Facebook is doing the uh, what was the the TV like thing? I don't even remember all of this, oh. these pivots. Remember they were they were doing anyway. Ricky so, Van Veen, they brought over the college yeah. humor guy and said, we're going to do produced video. Facebook TV, I even forgot what the name was, and I covered this stuff. Oh my There's God. been so many of them. There's been so many of them, but like eventually, I mean, it's like Charlie Brown. Like right. eventually, Charlie was like, no. I'm out no. of here. I'm, I'm out of here. In fact, I'm not even playing football anymore. <laughs> Forget about this <laughs> kicking stuff. Or maybe he just took up punting. I don't even know because he has full control. I guess that's what publishers, publishers are, uh, are being like, no, we're not going to have you hold the, we're just going to, we're going to punt it ourselves or drop kick it. Um, Cause I think that's, you know, publishers spend a lot of time pointing fingers um, at tech companies for, the um, the travails that their business um, businesses are in, but at the same time, they went into these agreements. No one forced them to to rely on that. You know, as I said, many publishers. I'm not like, you know, like I don't hate the player, I hate the game. I understand that, but like, you know, many publishers went into this eyes wide open. They were making a bet, and the bet just didn't um, pan out, right? And I think now, increasingly. You know, publishers want to be able to have a lot more control over um, how their businesses develop. That means that things are going to take a long time. 
and and the numbers are going to be smaller. So I think one of the interesting things that it, that is starting to take place across the entire media ecosystem is a comfort with smaller numbers, right? Like we've we've been so um, I, we've been so used to these astronomical numbers. I used to ha- on. I used to joke like in a podcast, like I would have people on from like, I would have like Ben Lair on from, from, from group nine and stuff. And he'd be like, or like, he'd be like, now this did like 4.5 billion video views last month. And I would be like, is that good? I'm like, literally, Ben, you could tell me any number. You could have said 4 trillion. And I'd be like, hmm, 4 billion, 4 trillion. doesn't really matter. We've gotten so used to massive numbers that, um, you know, the, the real numbers are going to be a lot smaller. And, and so everyone needs to get more comfortable with that. Um, I would rather have 10,000 email subscribers with like a 60% open rate than a, 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 a million people visiting from, from Facebook. Really? Yeah, for sure. Mm. I mean, it depends on like the category and stuff like this, but, but, um, Having like having a close connection with with an audience, particularly if it's in like a high value area, um, you can build a sustainable media business around that. And I think right. it's no mistake that a lot of the new publications that we see springing up are are really focused on defined audiences. Yeah, you know, often of, often high value audiences, but defined right. audiences. Yeah, flesh that out a bit and name some names. You know, if you look at um, at 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 just where some of the like funding is going, and like so, take just the the Washington D.C. publishing um, industrial complex, if you will. This mm-hmm. used to be a backwater, right? It used to be the Hill and Roll Call were these like little thin um, newspapers that got dropped off at members' offices, and and hopefully you catch the attention of some some legislative directors and stuff. Small businesses. Um, Politico uh, just exploded that market, right? Um, and it also went along with the growth of, of the government. The government has become um, far larger, um, so there's more money at stake. But what they realized was there's an incredibly high-value audience to be reached, and the people making legislation and trying to shape legislation, um, which means all the lobbyists and interests and whatnot. And so you know they got bought for a billion dollars, and that's why we've seen Axios um, uh, come out of uh, Politico. Uh, we've seen Punchbowl. I just did a podcast with Jake Sherman. They did ten million in their first year, um, and Grit Grid is starting. And again, they're all focused on these influential um, decision makers, um, which I think is good and bad. Like that's just one area of it. Um, and I think that there are a lot of opportunities, you know, both B two B but also B two C, when you're when you have a, a focused audience. I mean, what you're doing is is a perfect example of it, right? Um, you know, it's it's a big audience because technology is is a horizontal story, right? But it's a defined one. It's not. It's not general news. I don't think you see a lot of general news um, startups. We'll see what Ben Smith and Justin Smith end up coming out with. But I. I think it's going to be more focused. Um, I would bet than like a general news. I think we've we've seen the end of like you know Refinery Twenty Nine telling us that they're going to cover the Ukraine conflict. <laughs> that was so insane. I remember that. <laughs> 
<laughs> Sorry. Some of the stuff that's happened in this industry just makes you shake your head. I know. It's like parody. Like looking back, you're like, is this, was this real or was this a joke? <laughs> It's crazy. Brian Morrissey is here with us. He writes The Rebooting on Substack. You should go subscribe if you haven't yet. He's also the host of The Rebooting. It's a podcast. You can find it on your podcast app of choice. We're talking about the next evolution of digital publishing. We'll be back right after this. The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. In the last 100 years, we've seen financial markets swing. New currencies come and go. Decades of savings lost in days all showing that a retirement plan without a guarantee, quite simply, isn't enough. So more than a retirement plan, TIAA makes you a retirement promise. A promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life. A promise that pays off. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. And we're back here on the Big Technology Podcast with Brian Morrissey. He writes the rebooting on Substack, former editor-in-chief of Digiday. He also that's right, right, Brian? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, and he also was the digital editor, digital editor at Ad. Yeah, yeah. Um, one of the essential reads on the digital publishing uh, world. Been reading Brian for as long as I've been uh, paying attention to this stuff. So, um, for for more, well, more uh, than a decade now. All right, Brian. So we spoke a little bit about what the next era of of publishing is going to look like. So we've zeroed into it a little bit, right? It's going to be publications that are f- uh, f- focusing on a niche. Um, mm-hmm. What's the business model? You know, you mentioned, you, you gave us like a couple of data points. They're focused on a niche. They're largely email-based. Um, that doesn't seem like a, a business plan to me. So, so <laughs> that's not, what, what is it? It's a distribution it's, plan. It's, it's a, is it distribution? Is it subscriptions? Is it high dollar advertising? Um, you know, and then of course we're like seeing it in politics. We're seeing it in some ways in sports. Is it all Substack? Um, is it a a different version of this? Well, yeah. Tell me a little bit more about how it works. I mean, I mean, what I think one of the the good things about what's happening right now is that there's a whole diverse menu of ways that you can make money in publishing. Whereas before, I feel like um, it was mostly advertising was the default, right? And I like advertising. Um, I run advertising in the rebooting. Please get in touch uh, if you want to sponsor. <laughs> um, but you know, it's not the only way to make money. And so I think a lot of times in publishing, um, people can be dogmatic, right? It's either like remember like BuzzFeed. BuzzFeed was dogmatic about it. It was like just native advertising. We hate banner ads. We're not doing any of the banner ads and stuff like this. It made no sense, right? Like, no, it, it didn't, didn't make sense. I'll tell you why. Well, they, it's they marketing, were, right? Yes, they were. It's not that there was an aversion. Eventually, BuzzFeed did introduce banner ads. It was, right. yes, it was marketing. You're selling against the standard with a new form of advertising that you were better at than everyone else, and that's why. Yeah, but people that. catch up, right? Like, you know, it, it, at the time BuzzFeed started, it's you know native advertising, and John Steinberg was saying we'll never run banner ads, um, never say never um <laughs> it, it you know whatever you got it like a lot of you know people like digiday to write about it uh and you know ultimately the best way to make money is lots of different ways in media um so you know if there's a lot of people who say just subscriptions just ads you know ultimately and the history of media says you're gonna have like a number of different ways that you make money and i think if you just look at BuzzFeed, you know, like the the profile of their business now versus five years ago is is quite a bit different. They're making money in a bunch of different ways. I think the the challenge ends up being 
how many different ways can you can you make money without just uh, eating into your margins with higher infrastructure costs? Because then you end up in that in that situation where you you have all of these inf- infrastructure needs and teams needed in order to execute against that, right? And I think nowadays people are able to choose a bunch of different ways in which they make money that fits their editorial mission in some ways, right? So you can you you have new publications in which the business model is more consulting than it is oh, advertising. That? Well, I mean, you have um, you have people that are doing like I mean, I do consulting on the side, mm-hmm. right? And mm-hmm. the the newsletter is uh, is a good is a good way to to have you know, those kind of assignments because it's a way to like say how you think and stuff. Like right. This. Um, there's a lot of, there's people who are using this like to invest, right? Um, I think what Packy. Packy McCormick is doing at Not Boring is, is fascinating, right? And a lot of, you know, I, I understand it. A lot of capital J journalists are un- uncomfortable with it, but there is, there's no priesthood or accreditation process as far as I know <laughs> to be, to be publishing content on, uh, uh, on the internet. So, I think that's a good thing overall. Um, I understand the ethical quagmires and the rest of that, and they're very important. But ultimately, I think particularly when when you see this shift from institutions to individuals, you're going to have a lot of different types of, of business models because people inherently trust other people more than they trust institutions. We're seeing that all across the economy. That's that's what is powering this creator economy stuff, right? Is is people are more attached to other people. So tell me then, what do you think is going to, do you think that this next evolution is going to be more of these like publications that are going after the opportunity, a few that we spoke about, Ben Smith and Justin Smith's publication. Yeah. It's going to go after 200 million people, but follow the pattern that we talked about. Largely, pro- they'll probably do a lot of email. They'll probably do, you know, quality over quantity. And then you have the Pucks also, which you and I both, we both work with Puck, yeah. um, which is, you know, subscription-based, email-driven, quality news. Um, or do you think that it's going to be more individual-based, like we're doing on Substack or a combination of both? Yeah, it's going to be all of the above, right? I think the, you know, it's it's often said of media, so this isn't necessarily super original, but it, it goes through phases of of uh, bundling, unbundling, and then rebundling. Mm-hmm. I think we're at the start of a rebundling phase. I mean, you see that you see that in streaming. Uh, obviously, the explosion of of streaming services um, was going to be unsustainable. You just simply can't have this many subscriptions of this many streaming. Right. Uh, so what's the example you, know, you gave in your newsletter, like Sundance live. I don't know. Someone gave me that. shit about like, <laughs> I keep going after Sundance now. And that's me. Like someone was like, Oh, you know, just wrote me this week. It was like, yeah. you know, why, why do you keep going after Sundance now as an indie film buff? And I'm like, okay, <laughs> fine. It just, it just hit me, but you know, fine. Uh, you know the reality is people are, and we're seeing this. You know, growth slowing in in the streaming world is um, people get subscription fatigue at the end of the day. There's only so many things they can pay for, um, and so there's a need to rebundle, right? And I think mm-hmm. that that is the question about how the rebundling will happen. I pay a lot of attention to what Puck is doing. 
um, companies like every, in some ways, what Axios has done. And a lot of what they're doing is like, I consider them like collective media companies in which they're trying to have the best of both worlds. They're, they're trying to have the, the institutional benefits, which is like, oh, you have an infrastructure that exists. You have, um, I don't know, healthcare, <laughs> things like that, maybe a 401k, um, but you get upside, right? And, um, and the individuals are more front and center if you look at like how the puck model is. And I think that's really smart. Um, and so I think more publications are going to take the best of like the Substack world and mix it with the best of the existing publishing model. Right. And so do you, do you think that, um, do you think we've hit a peak though with this individual uh, individual reporter as a business, I guess we're both doing it. Um, yeah. or, or do you, do you, well, not guess we are both. Yeah. We it. should warn other people from getting into this. Right. So like just well, like yeah, no less competition. competition right? awesome. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's terrible. It's you should right. all not do it. It's, it's like the worst yeah. in the world. In all seriousness, it seems pretty promising, but sorry. Yeah. I'd like to hear your thoughts. on. No, it. I mean, it's, it's promising for a simple reason. The economics are great, right? If like, if, you can have enough demand on the subscription side and mm-hmm. or the sponsorship side. It, the economics are tremendous. Your costs are extremely low. So your margins are going to be like insane. And um, there's a lot of drawbacks to that. Um, you know, taking vacations is is more difficult when it's just you. Um uh, I, I was once told a very smart piece of advice that large organizations cover up for our inefficiencies. We can have <laughs> bad days. Um, right. We not you, Alex, you and I never have a bad day. Um, uh, well, it doesn't apply to me. I, I've had some pretty <laughs> tough ones and it's definitely shown up. But and it is, it is. Sorry, go ahead. Yeah, that's the downside uh, yeah. of it. I mean, I think it has... I think it has legs, uh, the 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 individual publications, right? But I think it's going to be itself a niche phenomenon, right? It, right. I don't know if Substack develops a true middle class. I, I haven't necessarily, and I don't even know what that middle class looks like, depending on the sector. Right now, a lot of the um, a lot of the success cases are um, in specific areas. There's what I consider the sort of grievance blogger mm-hmm. uh, world. Outrage. Uh, uh, yeah, outrage, outrage cycle stuff. Always sell. Doesn't matter the format. Social, email. Yeah. yeah. And like, you know, like Substack's getting pulled into that yeah. uh, over anti-vaxxers and mm-hmm. all that stuff like this. That's always going to be, you know, outrage will always be good. And, and particularly, we just have a, a tribalist society in which people, you know, want to, I don't want to say virtue signal, but they want to signal that they're part of a of a tribe and and that that is a way and and just to be clear this isn't unique to newsletters or Substack. i i would argue uh the new york times does the exact same thing since it's become a subscription publication if you look at the new york times today versus before it went hardcore subscription a lot has changed in our political front but like it's pretty clear like people People criticize a lot ad models for distorting the incentives, but I think it's pretty clear that the incentives uh, for the New York Times to preach to the choir um, are there, right? It's very interesting who your customer is. If your customer is your advertiser, you have a certain set of expectations. If your customer is your subscriber, on one hand, it's good because you align 
your your interest with your reader's interest. But on the other hand, the temptation to preach to the choir and to I don't know make the choir mad. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> so they keep. Paying I, I you. mean, but they, you also want to align with them. Like yeah. you see it anytime the New York Times has like published like a right. a dissenting conservative voice on its uh, opinion page. You know, all of a sudden, this cancel New York Times comes up. That has an impact. That has an impact. So, no model is 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 perfect um, by any stretch of the imagination. Um, but as I said, like there's different areas. I'm sorry, there was like different areas that are, and they're more like lucrative. For instance, like there's more like around fintech, like success cases in um, in the Substack world because that's where money is. And I think one of the one of the realities that I think is good to keep in mind, I try not to be Pollyanna-ish, but I'm trying to be a little bit more optimistic maybe than I was before, mm-hmm. it is that a lot of the innovation happening right now in publishing is geared to the affluent and the powerful. And none of that is new, but and I think it's just the, um, I think the focus is more these days in that direction. We have like, Escaping inequality in this country. I, I went to some like um, event at Art Basel. Talk about being on the other side of the the inequality divide. And even like some art dealer was telling me, she was like, "We're all courtiers at the end of the day." Hmm. And that's because we have so many mega rich people that there's you know the world is sort of you know organized to catering around them. There's so many underserved areas that um, do not have the luxury. Of of being able to have you know big subscription businesses, um, and I think that is obviously a concern. And so, I think it's great that we're seeing innovation, and I I don't believe it's like a zero sum game or anything like this. But at the same time, we need to have um, sustainable media models for all all demographics, and not just for for the affluent and powerful. You write, the biggest challenges facing societies in the future, climate change, inequality, migration, all disproportionately affect the non-rich. It's hard to see how trust in news can be reversed if much of it is directed towards and caters the ri- to the rich. Yeah. It's a big, big point and, and a worthy issue that it does seem that like a lot of news coverage is geared or well, yeah, the business models will gear towards the rich. And also like, you, you, I, it's, there's, there's a bubble aspect to it. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you, you tend, if you, if, well, we already know that media is as super coastal, uh, as newspapers have been, um, kind of, um, falling apart, uh, in small towns across the country. Um, how, do, how does this, can you reverse this? I mean, this seems like a, a an extremely, this is an extremely serious issue and, um, one that you highlight. And I'm curious if you think yeah. there's, there's hope for it. Yeah, I mean, like local is the hardest of the hard problems to solve, right? Axios is not solving it by one person, like mm-hmm. in Atlanta, uh, aggregating uh, content. I don't, I don't mean like that as a knock on what Axios is doing. I think it's it's good. I just wouldn't, I wouldn't PR it as saving journalism because it's not. Right. It's not saving local journalism. Right. For context, they have like they're starting to do these local versions yeah. where they like throw a reporter in a town, which, okay, we're glad to have a reporter, but out there, but yeah, it's, it's not, not going to replace the Pittsburgh Post-Gazette. Like, I mean, I grew up, I grew up in, in, in Philadelphia and we had the Inquirer 
I guess for the first like six or seven years of my life, we had the bulletin mm -hmm. and we had the daily news, which I believe came out twice a day. There was like an evening edition, right? It was like so much news. Even the Inquirer, the Inquirer had a Jerusalem bureau. <laughs> like it was nuts. Um, and, you know, now it's completely hollowed out, right? Um, I live in Miami right now and the Miami Herald, which has a, a, an incredibly long and storied um, tradition um, and again, they had, you know, bureaus throughout uh, Latin America, um, you know, looking at the paper today, it's like, it's, it's just a shell of its former self. Um, I don't know what the solution to that is. Benevolent billionaires um, are only benevolent until <laughs> for so long. So I don't know if that's like necessarily a good, um, a good approach. You go to other countries and you, you know, it's very normal to have publications aligned with political parties or oligarchs. And like, I do have concern that we will become the same, the same thing. Like, I, I don't. Feels like it's, it's happened already. Well, it's funny to me. It's like, if you're a billionaire in Ukraine, you're an oligarch. If you're a billionaire here, you're an entrepreneur. Like, I don't mm -hmm. know. Like, okay. I don't know. Like, I guess like it's somewhat different, but like, you know, the reality is like people who are powerful are not funding things out of pure altruism. I just don't believe that as a journalist and stuff. Right. So I think it's interesting that we're um, seeing some nonprofit models. I think Capital B just launched um, this week. Uh, Lauren Williams, former uh, editorial director at, at Vox, um, started this um, focused on, on Black issues uh, on a local level. I think they're starting in, in Atlanta and then, and then building from there. Um, but when I look at local, it's going to be it's going to be kind of like how we deal with like healthcare, right? There's no one system that we're going to have. We're just going to have a bunch of slices of Swiss cheese that we pile on top of one another completely inefficiently and solve part of the problem. But the problem doesn't go away. Yeah. And we've danced in this conversation a little bit around the topic of trust. But, yeah. you know, there's, there's, there's such little trust in, in the U.S. media right now. And I wonder if part of that is because the used to know your local journalists, right? And they would be in towns like Pittsburgh uh, yeah. and Toledo. Uh, and, and now, you know, as the papers in those areas start to fall apart or be bought by uh, private equity and then torn to shreds, you know, now a lot of journalists live in places like, well, I mean, I'm here in Brooklyn, right? Um, in, in Brooklyn, in Miami. California, you're in Miami. <laughs> well, you're out of the bubble then. Brooklyn and South. In some ways. Yeah. So, but I do think that they, you know, I, I wonder if there's, there's this trust issue where they just, um, you know, are not, are not going through what the rest, what people in the rest, and the rest of the country are. And, and if that's causing some serious disconnect between, you know, mainstream news and, oh, I don't know, we're not mainstream news, but like no. between the news and, um, and the news consumer. And maybe that's yeah. the principle in part. I, I think that's like, without a doubt, that's true. And like, I think in, in it's, the best cases is that all this like, you know, shifting to from institutions to individuals is that it rebuilds trust in some ways, right? I mean, we need yes. to rebuild trust in our institutions. I just think it's going to take a long time. I don't know of an institution that has fared well since the pandemic has started, at least in the United States. Every mm -hmm. institution has um, has suffered in some ways. So I think you know, the, the rise of individuals is, is, is similar to that. Cause you just trust people that you, you see and you hear and, you know, I mean, I think one of the, 
reasons that newsletters and podcasts are interesting is that I don't know if you found this is you have a different connection to to the people who are reading you or listening. You hear from them more, at least Most I do. Definitely. I hear from them more. Yeah, it's amazing. I have a conversation with them. And I think one of the good things of this sort of flight to focus is it forces people to do stuff that 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 doesn't scale, right? You got to be like in your community and embedded as part of your community, right? And that can be on a local level of going to the going to the community boards and stuff like this. But it's also like in like a B2B community or like for instance, I was talking with with Jake Sherman. Um, he and Anna Palmer and John Bresnahan, they've been on on the hill, each of them for more than 15 years, right? Like literally on the hill. Um, they are a part from, but a part of that community. They are at least like visible within that community and that engenders um, trust. And trust takes a long time to build up. You just don't automatically have it. And so um, I think it was Jeff Bezos said there's no compression algorithm for experience. But you know, a lot of this stuff obviously is, is a niche phenomenon just because it's really difficult. It takes a lot of time to build up um, to build up trust. And I think that's going to be completely critical um, because it's important for democracy ultimately. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. And, and I do think that the, the individual um, journalist model, uh, you know, it's it's amazing to be experiencing it firsthand. Um, it's awesome. And and I do think that when people know where you're coming from, uh, there's a chance to just have a much, yeah. much deeper, much, much more authentic connection with them. Yeah. Let me ask you this, though. I'm going to turn the tables on you. What what it's been, What's been the hardest part that you didn't expect to be the hardest part? Well, I, I think that there's definitely way more time being spent on stuff that's not journalism. Um, yeah. And that does, does take away from the ability to focus completely on reporting. I would love to have an, you know another day in the week that I could use strictly for reporting. So to me, that's that's been – I mean, I do love doing the business side of it. It's super fun. And you know, I went entrepreneurial because I enjoy doing entrepreneurial things. Yeah. Um, but like for me, there's definitely been um, – challenge in terms of like dedicating the amount of time for reporting. Yeah. And, you know, I, I was thrilled to get out on my own and like have a dialogue with, with readers and listeners through the newsletter and the pod. Um, but I miss newsrooms. Like, I think there's something to be said when you have the collective yeah. know, group together. And um, it, there, there's, there are moments where like, it's easy to lose focus if you're on your own in terms of where your North star should be. Um, and so like, for me, I think I've made it a practice and I just did it last night of spending time just writing, um, writing about what I'm, what I'm after, how I differentiate myself, what I'm covering, like basically just rewriting the beat memo over and over and doing it for my own good to keep myself. Yeah, focused. it is. It's so easy to get pulled off course. I feel like, mm -hmm. um, solo because you don't have, you don't have that structure of a newsroom, um, you don't have people to tell you that's a terrible idea. <laughs> Correct. Correct. And so I think that that makes it that makes it more difficult. Um, and I think that's why a lot of this is not is not made for everyone, right? Um, mm -hmm. I spoke to like a journalism school class uh, at Penn State uh, earlier this week, and I asked them. It was probably like 20, 20 students in the class, and I asked. Now it's hard to do with over zoom first of all like with show of hands you know those show of hands questions are always mm -hmm. lame but um 
but I pushed ahead. I did it anyway. And I asked him <laughs> how many, how many are, are expect to work in like institutional newsrooms when they graduate and two hands went up. Oh my God. And I asked like, why? And all, and one of them said, you know, was strategic about it. Um, and he said, oh, I want to like work in an institutional newsroom because I know I don't know enough. And then I want to go off and do my own thing. Um, there was much more, and I know it's been like a sort of cliche to like link to it about how like, you know, uh, uh, Gen Z or whatever, like want to be like uh, influencers and stuff, but they really want to be solo. And I think what was interesting to me was that when I asked why, what I heard was they were smart. They saw what happened to the millennials. They saw that they got like used as cannon fodder and then cast <laughs> aside. And the Gen Z people were paying attention. They weren't just on TikTok. They had one eye on what was going on. And these kids are savvy. You're not going to fool them with the free beer and like snacks. <laughs> <laughs> They're like, cut the check. <laughs> CTC. <laughs> but I yep. think it's a major issue. Um, for newsrooms, right? And I think it's a major issue for the profession because, you know, like you couldn't have been able to do this 10 years ago, right? I mean, like, no way. At, right? Because you didn't have the experience. No. I, I mean, the reason what, what actually gave me confidence to do it was writing Always Day One. Like once I wrote the book, um, the book is a, is a, you know, it's a solo endeavor. And and it forced me to, to, you know, become a much better writer because I looked at this thing as like, this was going to be my presentation of, of my yeah. work to the world. And I was going to, I spent an inordinate amount of time refining the writing and refining the ideas. And I think that once I got there, I said, I said, you know, I can write a newsletter on my own every week that without an editor because I've been yeah. through this process. And that's what I do worry about when like, you know, this Substack revolution sort of gets oversold in some <laughs> ways because um, you lose a lot. There's trade-offs to everything in life and mm -hmm. you lose a lot being not being part of a newsroom, but you also lose a lot not having like, and this is my bias since I was an editor of having an editor. Right. Um, and, you know, I, I hope that, you know, cause like, look, we always, um, I know when I was trying to hire you, like mm -hmm. the bet was always like, I was like, we'll let you do things. You'll not, you, you wouldn't be able to do it. What other, whatever other place that had a better name. Um, and you know, you will grow faster here than you will at those places. That was always the, cause like our benefits sucked and the salary <laughs> was maybe competitive. <laughs> um, and like you would have to like, you know, people would mispronounce the name and it didn't sound good at cocktail parties. You get a lot working against you. So you better have a better pitch than that. But I worry that um, that people will not grow in their craft because this is a craft at the end of the day. 100%. Yeah. I mean, I, I even know that like when I showed up to BuzzFeed, like I couldn't write. Like there was my writing was was bad. And just having that for five years hammered out of me. Um you know, it, 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 I could not have done it without that. So however yeah. much I hate it and my editors there will, will tell you, I'm sure that me in a Google doc could be kind of a terror, <laughs> but however much I hated having my words like changed and stuff like that, being through that process repetitively over five years, definitely changed the way that I approach this stuff. Oh uh, yeah. Were you like a prima donna about it, Alex? Were you like, take my name off this? No, I was never <laughs> prima donna. I mean, you've edited me, so you <laughs> know, know, You were but 
Thank you. I appreciate that. But yeah, I definitely would get attached to like certain facts or things in a story and, and fi- find it difficult to let go. Yeah, I get that. Do you so have, I hope I, yeah. I hope that there's like some sort of like I've been thinking about like apprenticeships, right? Like I, I hate when people call things fellowships because <laughs> it's just like we're yeah. not going to give you benefits. We're going to pay you not that much money, and right. then most likely we'll just like scoot you to the door unless you're really good. Then we'll hire you. Um, but like I do think like you know the apprenticeship model would be an interesting one for publishing because I, you know I I know the needs for um, for people to perfect their craft are 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 still there that doesn't change um everyone needs to learn um but i just think that it needs to be in a different way than it's been structured before all this you know the unionization that is sweeping through newsrooms i don't even know of a major newsroom at this point that that hasn't been unionized i mean that's a tell like you know there's Mm -hmm. a lot of dissatisfaction with how publishing companies have have been organized and um and I think that needs to change. I, I, I wonder if like an apprenticeship model would make more sense for the people who are more entrepreneurially minded. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I think that could work. And I also think that the stuff that's going on at, at places like Puck really makes a lot of sense where you put the journalists front and center, you give them a piece of the action yeah. and and you edit them still. But I would say this, I think the the uh, I would say the downside of that is that these are people who have already established themselves, right? And right. I always thought the test of a a great publication is being able to nurture, um, you know, great uh, reporters, and, and that's the calling card, right? I mean, the thing that I, I sort of, you know, if there's anything I'm most proud of with Digiday is that how many people who, and I don't pretend that it was because of us, they did it, but how many people who came through ended up going on to doing really great things at, mm-hmm. at other places? Like, I think that's the test, like, of having a strong alumni network that you were able yeah. to, again, enable them to grow faster than they would otherwise. Mm-hmm. Um so I think it's like a little bit easier to like, um, it's a little bit of a shortcut itself to just collect a bunch of people who, had, who have already perfected, not perfected, but come close to, to perfecting their craft. Yeah. No, I agree. You guys were great at that. I, I thought Ben Smith also just like a master at it. And yeah. that's why I'm bullish about what he's going to build. I have no idea what it is. Um, but the way that I saw Ben... Um, you know, pick people from, you know, from untraditional backgrounds often because he was, yeah. compete- he wasn't going to get the person that the times was recruiting. He was going to get someone else and then turn them into a star reporter it was amazing. Yeah. So I, I'm very interested to see yeah. if, if new publications can do that. Cause that's the test. Just yeah. amassing people who are already really good at like what they do is, um, is nice, but I don't, I don't see that as, um, the same as being able to, to, to nurture, you know, talent. Agreed. Do you have 10 more minutes to talk about crypto? Of course. Okay, great. Well, why don't we do that? We'll do 10 more minutes on crypto and then we'll let Brian get back to his day here on Big Technology Podcast. We'll be back right after this. Hi, I'm Tomer Korn, LinkedIn's Chief Product Officer. On my podcast, Building One, we dive deep into what it takes to build great products. Recently, we had Zach Perret, the CEO of Plaid, and he shared about his struggles building a financial app for consumers and how he was able to turn it all around with a critical pivot. Take a listen. 
I personally couldn't resonate as much with the consumer set that we were trying to reach. I just didn't have that level of empathy. When we made the shift to building a B2B product though, I was building the product that I wanted. My co-founder and I were creating the product that we wanted ourselves, and we had so much empathy for what that product was. Such a great insight. You know, in that sense, we got lucky because we were, we were creating a thing for ourselves. And then the people that we were talking to also had the same problems we did. They were fintech developers. We'd been a fintech developer. Uh, we'd been trying to build a fintech product for a year. And so, we had such deep empathy. We had such a clear ability to... If you want to hear more of Zach Perret's story and the lessons that follow, listen and subscribe to my podcast, Building One. And we're back for one final segment here on the Big Technology Podcast with Brian Morrissey, the, uh, what do you call yourself? The CEO, founder, editor... <laughs> sole proprietor. Of the rebooting, the sole proprietor of the rebooting. It's a great newsletter on Substack. Wouldn't it be great if, if instead of like people like... <laughs> Calling themselves like entrepreneurs or just yeah. like small business owners and stuff like this. I don't know when yeah. like everyone became like sort uh-huh. of entrepreneur. Like I don't know the people. Oh my who gosh. Open, people yeah. who open up a bakery aren't like I'm an entrepreneur. They're like, no, I opened a bakery. Yeah, I was uh, I was coming out of uh, JFK last night, and uh, the guys, st- the the police officers standing at the exit were like, all right, you know, before you could actually leave to society, they're like, oh, what do you do for work? Who do you work for? I was like, uh, oh, no. I'm a business owner. And they're like, what type of business? What do you sell? And I was like, well, I was like, I sell information on the internet. <laughs> the oh, guy no. looked at me weird. Did you get pulled into like a room or something? Like, we need this guy in secondary. I mean, it was close. He was like, I hope it's good information. And I was like, well, if you really need to know. And he's like, just go. <laughs> you know, Alex, I hope I hope a day very soon arrives that yeah. you can come into JFK and you'd be like, I read a newsletter and they're just like, boom, they stamp your passport and they're like, welcome back to America, sir. That's right. Yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm sure that will happen very soon. <laughs> so let's talk about crypto because um, you are, from your writing, pretty optimistic about crypto. I'm crypto curious. I'm not Say crypto more about sold. That. Yeah. Uh, is that a weasel position? I don't know. No, I think that I think that that's a fair position. I mean, yeah, I think it's it, it makes a lot of sense to be curious about it, but not sold. It seems like the right position to me. Yeah, and I think it's just like for me, like um, beyond the technical aspects of it, which I don't pretend to fully grasp, although I've I've tried as much as I could. I mean, I'm like, hey, you and I both have like delved into programmatic advertising. So I'm like, oh, yes. I don't mean to be cocky, but like I know certain, <laughs> um, I know enough to be dangerous yeah. with this stuff. Mm-hmm. But to me, like it makes a lot of sense. And I like, you know, when you look at um there's so many smart people um who uh, who are going into this field that there needs to be like a lot more fleshing out and a lot more meat on the bones. And I understand that we're in this um, trough of disillusionment. I believe that's like a key part of the Gartner hype cycle. Mm-hmm. Um, you go in, and then it normalizes. <laughs> and right. we're, we're in that right now because, mm-hmm. um, you know. The- you would call it a trough of disillusionment. That's interesting because it seems like there's, it's almost like a, another polarized thing. There's a bunch of people disillusioned and a bunch of people who are like, this is the next big, next biggest thing after Jesus. Oh yeah, well they're the Ponzi, you know, yeah. people like are selling Bitcoin <laughs> pizza and whatnot. Yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, that's that's just all part of the the scheme, right? Um, but I think you know when you look, it's like every week comes out another about why Web three is like a bunch of nonsense and stuff like this, and and it's important to to me, it's like important to pay attention to you know both the knowledgeable naysayers, but also like the biggest proponents. 
but understanding that each has their own, um, they're arriving at it with their own point of view, with their own interests, right? Like, I mean, I think a lot of the the, the crypto boosters, they they obviously have an interest in, in pumping up um, the the prices and this thing has to keep going because it has momentum. You needed to keep bringing more people in. And that's why people call it a Ponzi scheme. Mm-hmm. But I think the underlying um, principles of it are, are, are very sound. I mean, obviously there's not many people who are very pleased with how the technology um, industry is set up right now. I think there's, there's very little bipartisan, like agreement on anything in Washington. One issue that everyone is unhappy with the power of big technology, if I could say. That's, that's right. Why. Yeah. And, you know, that's the same because a lot of the promises that the internet made, um, you know, have simply been disappointing to, to a large degree, right? Like we were supposed to have this, this amazing democratization um, and, you know, it ended up, it ended up not working out. It ended up just with a couple of gatekeepers. And um, so I think this is a reaction to a lot of that. Obviously, with Bitcoin, it was a reaction to um, the financial crisis. So I think it makes a lot of sense that there there would be a reordering. Um, And again, these things all come in cycles. And so I would think that there's a good chance that this is the next cycle of innovation um, on the internet. Yeah. And one of the things I always keep reminding myself is that the internet is really so young. I mean, high speed, high speed internet is only a few decades old. And if you think about it in the course of humanity, um, the internet's not going to go away. So we are going to have a lot more innovation from what we have. And I guess it's cool to see these. You know, having like sort of lived through a few of these cycles, mm-hmm. like you know, and 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 been working during them, like I'm 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 like the last I'm part of the last generation that grew up analog, mm-hmm. um, and which is an interesting experience um, because you know, for those of us who are in Gen X, our our childhoods and you know even in college, you know, were internet free. We didn't have the internet. We didn't have, I didn't have email until I graduated from college. Um, so it gives you a slightly different perspective to some degree. Mm. Um, and it, I think it reminds you of, of, at least it reminds me of, of how new and, and weird all this stuff is. Um, but I also having lived through this, I can remember the over promises of the internet 1.0 era and the silliness of pets.com mm-hmm. and pseudo and all these other uh, fly by night entities that went away. Um, and then the NASDAQ crash and everyone wrote off all the stuff that was happening and they didn't pay attention. They looked at the NASDAQ number. They didn't pay attention to um, the number of homes getting broadband. And that, that ended up being a more important um, number. Mm. I can remember when I can remember Google's IPO being a mess, Facebook's IPO being a mess, F- Facebook not being able to make the transition to mobile and stuff like this. And so boom and bust is part of, of you know, the internet cycle. Um, I don't think that the development of the technology industry is going to stop all of a sudden, right? Like if right. you were to go back 20 years ago, it was all about sun microsystems. <laughs> like, you know, and things change very quickly. And so, you know, it makes sense to ch- for for this to be, you know, the next cycle of innovation. And do you see any applications for publishing there? Yeah. 
course. Like, I mean, I think, um, you know, one of the principles that I think is the, is, is most compelling to me in the web three world is the concept of, of ownership. And so moving, if you think about like, you know, early internet really treated publishing, treated their, the audit, their, you know, they talked about audiences and there was a lot of targeting. We want to target the audience, a lot of military metaphors and whatnot. <laughs> and then web 2.0 kind of introduced the, the, the idea of community with a lot of nonsense around sharing economy. That was really mm-hmm. about like getting around local regulations and running unregulated taxi and hotel chains, be that as it may. I think the next, like, I think the idea of, of moving towards a, a, better system of ownership in which incentives are better aligned would would serve the internet well i think you know overall there the internet for some reason has evolved into almost a predatory place right it's like a lot of the you know the the Tahrir square the twitter you know Tahrir square days are long past and going on the internet as a as a user is is an almost adversarial um uh experience you're always worried about like you know what is is going to be done to your to your computer or who's collecting data for what purposes and whatnot and um and even in the business models i mean you see a lot of there's been a lot of predatory um behavior um by technology companies um you know the don't don't be fooled by the fleece. There's this is some sharp elbows going on. Mm-hmm. So I think that is really you know interesting. Obviously, you know with with NFTs and having a a new way of um, of having like a community show their support is is interesting to the point of where they have ownership privileges. You know, because right now like subscriptions. I think the way subscriptions have been implemented by many publishers is in the same sort of predatory way, right? You see all these, you see all these um, dollar a month intro offers that explode to like three hundred dollars a year and stuff like this. Now, a lot of that is based off of you know people not canceling and then you just whack them um, and hope they don't uh, hope they don't notice. Um, this is the same kind of stuff that has eroded trust to begin with. So if you can come, if Web 3.0, if it's Web 3, I I don't care. If if there can be a better alignment of incentives using these technologies between the people creating the content and the people who want that content to exist in the world, then I think that should lead to a healthier digital media ecosystem. An optimistic note to leave it off on. Brian Morrissey, thank you so much for joining. What a great conversation. Appreciate you being here. Yeah, thanks, Alex. Appreciate it. Okay, and people can find the rebooting. Why don't you give the shout out? Yeah, it's the rebooting. It's the rebooting.substack.com. Um, there's also the rebooting show, which is my podcast um, that's on Apple and Spotify. I haven't left Spotify over the Joe Rogan thing just yet. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, and, and I I uh, can't recommend both properties enough. Some of my favorite stuff. Always great to read. Uh, Brian, always great to listen to him, and even better to speak with him. So thanks again. Thank you to Nate Guatney for uh, editing the audio. I, I know 
Nate, we're giving to you last minute, so I appreciate the help. Um, thanks to Red Circle for hosting and selling the ads. Thanks to all of you, the listeners. Appreciate you being here with us every week. I think we're going to be talking about CRISPR next week. So if you're into gene editing, why don't you stick around? Um, if I'm, glad you didn't, here, I'm glad you didn't get the questions mixed up. <laughs> it's like a nightmare. get you back on talking about <laughs> CRISPR, man. Um, <laughs> If it's your first time here, please subscribe if you're here for a while and you like the show. A five-star rating would be much appreciated on Apple. We only have a few of those, so if you're willing to rate us, that would be a big help. Um, Other than that, have a great week. Thanks again for stopping by Big Technology Podcast. We will see you next time.